Welcome to the Oil and Gas Global Network's Legal and Risk Management Podcast with Sarah Stogner, where each weekly episode touches on legal and risk management issues impacting the energy sector. Visit our website at www.oilandgaslegalrisk.com for more information on today's episode, past episodes, and upcoming OGGN events. Today's episode is sponsored by ThoughtTrace, developers of Alley, an artificial intelligence platform that reads and understands energy agreements and contracts to quickly find critical data. Hey, good morning. This is Sarah Stogner with the Oil & Gas Global Network's Legal and Risk Management Podcast. I am sitting here today with Jeff Runyon. He is the Director of Strategic Growth at Hawker Consulting, which is an engineering firm, right? That's correct. And we are talking about professional liability insurance and errors and omissions and stuff like that. So you just want to kind of introduce yourself and who you are and what you do? Yeah. So my name is Jeff Runyon. I did four years in the Marine Corps. And right out of the Marine Corps, I got a job doing engineering in the facilities world for oil and gas. Did that full time while I was in school, getting a degree for petroleum engineering at ULL. Raging Cajuns. Yeah, that's right. And then so from there, I've been uh, staying inside of the engineering services world uh, since then. So I've been doing that for nine years now really enjoying it. I've been able to see the Eagleford, the Permian, the Bakken, the Powder River offshore shelf and deep water. So I have a pretty... So you have no experience. ...broad uh, <laughs> range of experience and some conventional stuff too. So I think it's kind of fun to be unconventionally conventional right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a good way to put it. So you guys just moved from Louisiana to Denver, right? Did. Yeah. Last May. Yeah. And we were just saying about the weather. It, we're in Midland right now, and we had this horrific hailstorm. And you actually braved the storm last night to come to our first Permian Basin happy hour. So thank you. It was worth doing. Yeah. And time. did you see me crawl underneath the picnic table last night? I did not. I think I missed that. Okay. I'm just kind of sad now, though. <laughs> so at one point, and for those listening, this will go live probably next week. But we had literally golf ball-sized hail all over Midland last night. And we were at the beer garden, which for anyone that's been out here, it's outdoors and it's got tarps. And I'm, I'm talking to someone and I said, somebody firecracker. Like it sounded like a firecracker. And then somebody else goes, no, I think that's hail. I said, no way that's hail. And literally 10 seconds later, it just, and my, of course, lawyer brain that's trained to see risk and disaster and every twist and turn is looking at the metal poles and the large permanent tent thinking my brain is how I make money. If my brain gets damaged, I'm (laughs) up, you know, what's Creek. I need to protect my brain. There is nothing hard and protective. So I literally climbed underneath one of the picnic tables and a couple people said, are you afraid of the weather? I was like, no, I'm just trying to protect, you know, my asset of my brain. So we survived. Car got a little damaged. I'm sure my roof, I've got somebody coming to look at that later, but we survived. So welcome to West Texas, man. Yeah, I drove in it. Driving in the hill is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> exciting. That's it's never a good way, word there, you want. There was nowhere to stop. Every tree had cars underneath yeah. it for three miles. And eventually I found an unoccupied tree and parked it yeah. in my company well, there, truck There's four, four trees in Midlands. So That's good not, luck, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So thanks for reaching out for me because reaching out to me about this episode because One of the things I'm constantly struggling with in my negotiations of master service agreements is professional liabilities 
and or errors and omissions insurance. And so typically, it doesn't matter who I am representing, if I'm representing the operator or if I'm representing the service company, but there's always, I think, a misunderstanding and maybe a gap, coverage gap, that exists oftentimes with professional liability insurance. And so for those that are new to the podcast or listening or have no idea what that is, guys, just kind of a, a quick and dirty is that your general liability policy that you have protects accidents and occurrences, right? It doesn't protect intentional acts. And there's almost always an exclusion for professional services. So for example, as a lawyer, I have a professional liability policy that if I commit malpractice, which we never want to happen, but I am intentionally acting as a lawyer, then if there's a problem, I forget a deadline, you know, I don't file something on time and my client's prejudiced, then that's what my professional liability policy is for. Same thing for engineers, architects, surveyors, all kinds of stuff. Well, so you can imagine in the oil and gas context, there's always an overlap, right? So if you've got an operator, especially smaller operators that are hiring lots of independent consultants, they're going to be relying on the engineering expertise probably of some of the people that they're contracting with. Or maybe they've got an independent company man or they've got a separate engineering firm or maybe there's no engineers, right? All kinds of assorted scenarios here, but you can see where if there's an accident or something bad happens and insurance comes into play, there's almost always going to be, well, who engineered this drill? Or who, who was designing this? Who was surveying this? Who, fill in the blank, right, did something that helped contribute to this accident? So you actually had, and we won't go into names or specifics to you know, kind of protect the innocent, right? But you... We're interested in this because you were deposed, yep, right? That's correct. Okay. So there was an accident, and for any of my engineering friends who have ever been deposed, I'm sorry, and I know that it's not a fun process. I personally love it because I don't ever have to be the one that's answering the questions. To me, depositions are a lot of fun, prepping people. But I get that I'm weird and, you know, like reading insurance policies. So, of course, I like depositions, right? Yeah. Weirdness you goes would. hand in hand. I would, I would. So kind of... Can you tell people without revealing names and confidences kind sure. of what happened and why you got interested in this? Yeah. So we were putting in a replacement pipeline. We were in just installing in kind, just replacement in kind for a pipeline that had got past its service life. Okay. So it was a buried pipeline. It was buried. It was stick fiberglass. It was 24 years old. And so the resin was wearing out. And so we wanted to replace it with spoolable pipe something that was a little more long-term that would be able to handle moving water around a big conventional field for a water flood. Okay. So I was the project manager and the lead engineer on that. Whenever I was working through these things, we had a survey done. We had a lot of work done. I specified a lot of different things to make sure that the pipeline was installed correctly. What ended up happening is during one of the bores, they lost signal on the bit for the bore they didn't know what depth they were at. The boring crew took it upon themselves to proceed with the bore without letting anybody know that they were doing that. Blindly. Blindly. We would have told them no. They said, well, it was underneath a lake, pond, you know, water feature, and there were power lines over it. So we couldn't get out there and the power lines were creating too much interference. And so they had legitimate concerns, but we would have stopped work and come up with a good solution. Anyway, so they ended up 
making like an S shape in the vertical and they came way up closer to surface. I had specified that all bores were to be seven feet below grade minimum. They did not hit that. They ended up absolutely wrecking shop through about 30 feet of fiberglass pipeline. And it resulted in a pretty big spill. We put out a bunch of salt water, like four or 5,000 barrels of salt water. And into, into a, a bottle of, into into a, a body a of body water. water. Which, as an aside, we'll do another episode on the proposed Clean Water Act amendments and uh, Waters of the United States. And that's, if you want to nerd out, talk about nerdy. That's clearly a water of the United States if it was a navigable. So so is it a big enough lake? So where it spilled into wasn't, but about 200 yards away was a creek that fed into the Sabine, which is. And it it was the... I had for the SPCC plans, we had calculated how long it would take for it to get to the Sabine, and it was not all, it was not long. So, whenever we found that the spill had happened, which was hours afterwards, because because it was underwater, we couldn't see it. It wasn't visible until oil started coming right. up, and we could smell gas right. or the like, pumper oh, smell gas. Slick. It was not good, <laughs> and so we had to rush around and, and dam up and make, put some earthen berms up to keep it from getting too into that, right, that to, creek to, to keep it from migrating. So after that, we did some, some things that were interesting. And at the time I didn't think that they were entirely necessary. And in retrospect, I'm really glad we did them. We started a new AFE. We got new job codes. We got a bunch of stuff out so that you're like my model engineer. Did you have to sit across the table from an insurance coverage I lawyer? I never did that. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you got spared that I never experience. had to do it, but I think it was in part because my counterpart at the operating firm and I, <laughs> we made the decision that we wanted to categorize all these costs very effectively outside of this because we just didn't know where it was going to go. And so I feel like very smart. it saved me a lot of time and it saved my company a lot of overhead hours for me doing stuff. Yeah, it certainly did. And it probably helped with the coverage issues. I tell people all the time I would when, think so. when I go in, I said, look, you know, if you've got an incident, you don't set up your AFEs like you would any other event. You need to figure out, usually how I recommend is you at least preliminarily figure out who you think will be responsible for what types of costs. So like, let's talk about this incident, right? You've got immediately, you've got a pollution incident. So if there's a standalone pollution policy, that's one thing. If there's a sudden and accidental endorsement or buyback under your general liability that has some time element requirements, if you found it and reported it, if you found it within six hours or 24 hours or whatever it was relatively quickly and you you properly reported it, then there's probably some sudden and accidental pollution coverage. It's not a well-control event. So you don't have to worry about your well-control policy probably, but you've got to worry about your umbrella professional liability of who was in charge of what, making sure that the operator, the boring company, consulting anyone that's on site, reviewing the MSAs, figuring out who's responsible for what, all of that. And granted, people are probably going to fight about it. But if you spend a little bit of time up front and say, okay, we're at least going to try to categorize our costs and capture them in ways that make sense for us internally and that we can justify and piece back together later on, it will be a whole lot easier than just lumping, hey, you know, response, everything into one AFE and kind of hoping for the best. Yeah. I'm really glad we didn't do that. I feel like my life would have been much more challenging. (laughs) Yeah. You might still be in litigation. One of the things I didn't do well was I didn't document everybody's 
perspective very well. And I wish we also provided construction management for that job. And so I documented my own experience as well. And my construction manager's experiences were documented somewhat well. I feel like if I had done a lot better job of being extremely thorough, now that I've gone through a deposition, I know how thorough I need to be. Right. In the future, I'll make sure to document that thoroughly so that it's just like, hey, here's because there's a lot of like, well, I don't quite remember right. what happened. Right. What did then, you have for breakfast on March 27th? I mean, one of my questions were like, well, we want to go through these two hours in five minute increments. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is 10 months ago or 11 months right. ago. I have no idea. And you know, the first thing, whenever I respond to an incident, the first thing I do is I ask everyone for their tally books. And granted, as things go more digital and people are taking less manual field notes, but it's still really important. And to only document facts, right? So the worst thing you can do is start journaling and opining about causes and things like that. So you want to make sure that you're tracking and, and, and recording facts. I met Bob. Bob said X at this day, this time. I reported back to Y kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I wish I had done a lot better job of that like right afterwards. And just during the during the incident, did you guys actually set up a formal like incident command system, or you said you had an SPCC in place, but did you, was it big enough that you actually had a formal, you know, incident commander and, and did all that kind of we stuff? We had, we did. The incident commander ended up being me for part of it. Uh, we had a gentleman show up who was not performing work very safely. And so I said, you need to go to the truck and I will run this until we get somebody out here who's qualified. We know we're not going to we're not going to take risks with anybody's life or anything. Right. It Man, was, uh, it's scary it stuff. It's pretty interesting. So what are, you know, what kind of got you thinking about the professional liability part? So as we went through the process, I, I realized that a lot of the questions were centered around, well, did you do your job and did you do it well or did you do it adequately? And at the end of the day, we did our job well and we did it adequately within the budget that we were provided and within the scope that we were provided. So we only had one construction manager. There were three or four different crews running on that pipeline and at any given time. Obviously, he can't be everywhere. Right. We requested to have greater coverage. The operator declined and said they did, they wanted to save costs and they didn't want to have somebody on each at each place. And we were still held responsible because we had a construction manager who was managing the construction. So even though we asked for, you know, a more adequate number of people to be out there, we were told no, we were still held, you know, still filmed partially responsible for what happened. And I thought that that was really interesting. And so I got really interested in MSAs and how they're worded. And I was like, well, this should be addressed somewhere. Right. Like I shouldn't, I shouldn't make a recommendation that is an engineering recommendation or a safety recommendation and then still be able to be responsible for it later. And if I, they don't follow your advice, if they don't, if they choose like openly to say, no, we don't want to do that for whatever reason. And maybe they have a business case for that and that's fine. Right. Yeah. It's funny. So I was actually having a conversation last night with a younger lawyer and she called me and she said, you know, uh, I'm trying to make the client happy. The client wants to settle. It was these, it's these small personal injury cases, right? And it's not oil and gas related. And they can probably make them go away for ten dollars or $15,000. And there's five or six different cases. And the general counsel at the company doesn't want to settle out of principle. She says, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. I want to fight this. Well, the insurance company who's paying for their defense says, well, we want to settle. It's a whole lot cheaper to pay 
five people $10,000 than it is to even go through summary judgment, discovery, things like this in litigation. You risk opening up a big old can of worms. So an insurer has a purely financial interest, right? It's looking at dollars and saying, if it's going to cost us X to make these things go away versus fighting them, potential for a larger judgment, the attorney's costs and expenses along the way, the headaches, whatever, and the client, the insured policyholder, who's saying, you know, guys, this is our professional reputation out there. We don't want to settle. But at the end of the day, it's all business. And so it's really important as lawyers that we help guide clients through, I hear you. It really sucks, right? You think you're right. You think you didn't do anything wrong. You did what you were supposed to do. But really, at the end of the day, it's got to be a business decision. And oftentimes, policies, insurance policies, have cooperation clauses, things like this, where if the insurer wants to settle a case and pay, you don't have the ability as the policyholder to say, no, we want to fight it. Or if you do, then you risk waiving your rights under the policy. And they can say, that's fine. If you want to fight this out of principle, we're withdrawing any obligation to defend you. Yeah. So ultimately, that's what happened in this case is that they decided to settle. And I was extremely frustrated by it. Everyone had said, oh, you did exactly what you were supposed to do. We still and our insurance still ended up paying out. Our premiums went up because they had they paid out. And frankly, it made the entire work that we did for that client, you know, not profitable. Right. You know, when you look at it over a two or three years of extra insurance premiums on a, on a smaller client. So it changed the way that I approach risk and how I think about insurance and, and what we should be covered for and how our insurance verbiage should be stated. And the MSAs even, I think that MSAs are fairly vague in terms of responsibility being handed over on design and things like that. I get a little bit frustrated sometimes because clients will make a decision that's a legitimate decision for them, but that I will disagree with strongly. Yeah. And because my, you know, my company's name is going to go on there. Hawker's name is going to be on the PNID set. And that's our design. If they say, well, we don't want this because we don't want to spend the money or we don't want this because it's going to be an operational headache or whatever. Right. Fill in the blank. It doesn't matter. It's still our design and we still have to own it. Right. And so I wish that we could have MSAs that were like that, that stated that went through the process from issued for, to review through issued for construction and stated when each party had an opportunity to provide input and whose decisions were whose. And it would just be pages and pages of, of you know, defining those things. And I feel like it would help engineers and clients have better relationships because they would each understand where that responsibility was. A lot of times it get just get, just gets shuffled onto the service, right. the engineering services contractor, and it, it, you know the client doesn't accept much responsibility there at all. But they are the ones making critical decisions that have a lot of implication for the service. Yeah, provider. no, absolutely. So, you know, my school of thought is that the whole point of a good MSA is to effectively allocate risk and responsibility ahead of time so that in the event of an incident, you know who's taking what responsibility. And oil and gas is a little bit different than a lot of other industries, but I think it's, it's, it's a smart way to do it in that I take my things, responsibility for my people and my property, and you take responsibility for your people and property. In practice, though, we always have carve-outs, right? So as a contractor, for example, that pollution risk. So if you're talking about drilling a well, 
traditionally that the operator will agree to take pollution that starts from below the surface of the ground or water bottom, and the contractor only takes pollution, IADC form stuff, right, that goes back to contractor takes uh, pollution emanating from its equipment only, okay? There are reasons for that historically, but in a situation like you dealt with where you've got multiple contractors and you're not drilling a well, you're doing other things, it may make sense that who has the best who is in the best position to obtain insurance for this risk at a reasonable rate and trying to convince people that let's get your insurance in place. Let's see what insurance is available, right? Let's figure out what you can get, how much it's going to cost you, and then let's draft the contracts and the agreements accordingly. And it's just, unfortunately, it's not usually done that way. And if anybody that follows me on LinkedIn is probably sick of me talking about it. But Bill Wilson has this book and it's called When Words Collide. And my husband came in last night and made fun of me because at midnight I could not put it down. It's like a good thriller book, but it is all about coverage and commas and semicolons and words matter. It is the nerdiest thriller of all times. But he talks about one of the things that you just made me think of is he talks about weasel words, right? And so weasel words, he says, he uses it as an informal term for a word or phrase aimed at creating an impression that a specific or meaningful statement has been made when instead only a vague or ambiguous claim has been communicated. So for example, a homeowner's policy was endorsed to include, quote, farm-like structures. So as two-story building burned and the claim was denied on the basis that it was a barn, even though it was not used in any way to store farm products or equipment or house farm animals. Okay, so we see this stuff in MSAs all the time. What is usual to the occupancy as a dwelling? I get in fights all the time in my warranty provisions of whether or not we're going to require industry standards. So things like API standards, right? So perfect example, I had an operator the other day and we're talking with an MSA with a frat company and in the warranty, I, unless otherwise agreed upon in writing, there's reasons and circumstances where you can't, but I want it to be in a good and workmanlike manner in accordance with industry standards. Reason. Okay. So for example, there is an issue with certain kind of cement that's used for cementing the casing and they couldn't get the API graded cement, but there was a discussion about it, right? So consulting firm comes in and says, hey, in our contract, it says that we're going to have, you know, we're going to adhere to standards. We can't get this API suggested cement. Here's the alternative. It meets all of the requirements. Are you okay? Yes. There's been a discussion, a meeting of the minds, and it makes people communicate. I think that's the best way we can do it, right? So you want to have some specificity, but at the same time, we can't predict every situation. So how do you... Yeah, I I agree with that. Yeah, I just feel like the conversations aren't being had at all right now. And so that's why I say that I wish that it was included, because then at least we would be saying, oh, well, it's our responsibility to produce an issue for review document. And then the ball is in your court and any decision that comes out of there, you're going to take responsibility for. It'll be documented. And then when we issue something issued for construction, like, well, you know, these things are spelled out and it will it will encourage the discussion. And I wish that we would just encourage those conversations a little bit more openly right now. And I think you could totally as a as a consulting firm, I think you guys could come up with a proposed essentially 
almost like we see in the construction industry of here's going to be, you know, we've got a big picture plan. This is the project we envision, right? Then we're going to work together to develop, here's the specs. Here's what we want you to quote on. Then they come in and they say, okay, now that we've got the basics of that three-bedroom, two-bath house, let's figure out the exact layout. And then let's figure out what type of granite you want. And then you're going to sign off on that. And if I recommend granite A because I'm not colorblind, and you pick granite B, and then once granite B is installed, you go, oh, that's horrible. That doesn't match. And you say, well, yeah, I told you. I mean, that's an easy you know, that's an easy scenario in, in everyday life, but in a well design or, right, carry that over and it becomes a whole lot more difficult for, I think, for two reasons. One, because it's so highly technical and two, because it's happening underground and we really don't know a lot of times exact, we don't have a camera. Yeah, that's we, correct. We can't look exactly See at what happened, happened, right? So the, for when you know you picked color A, I gave you color A, I advised you against color A, you picked it anyways, that's easier. When it's, well, I told you to drill the well this way, or we all agree that the well was going to be drilled this way. Here was the drilling plan, and then we had a dog ear. Okay, well, who's responsible? At what point did it cause a loss? This one did. Is it just a little bit of an inconvenience, and we've got a little bit, you know, I mean, there's all different varying degrees of issues. But I think you could come up with, kind of your suggested, here's our protocol, this is what we're going to do. And then once you sign off on it against our advice, you send that CYA communication and arguably it should help. It should. But but it's not always. It's no, and it's not always. And if it's your property and people that are hurt or damaged, the reason we write it is because you're the ones, you should be the ones with the insurance. And then even if they go against their advice, your advice, and say, no, we want to do X, even though you recommended Y, and then X causes a loss to you, that's not that's not fair, right? Yeah, it sucks. As a facilities consultant, I think that people go against our advice frequently. You know, we are not, uh, we're a trailing discipline, certainly. You know, nobody wants to blow out a, a well control issue is horrible. Right. But if we're if we have a process safety incident, um, that's seen as less horrible. Right. Even though it's on the surface and uh, could be equally damaging. Right. To life or property or yeah. anything. Money, wallets. Money, like you know, production shut in for a long time because you don't have a facility because you didn't want to put the right safety equipment in. Yeah. And offshore, you have to follow API 14C. It's part of a submittal process. I'm interested to see over the next couple of years if we adopt those type of documents onshore. Everybody <laughs> says no. It's just, it's no. not that expensive and it's not, it's, it makes a more functional design and it's very, it makes it clearer about what's safe and what's not safe. And so, I just wish we would have the conversation instead of being, instead of the answer being, well, I don't want a level safety that's going to cause me to shut wells in all the time. Well, that's, if your level safety is shutting wells in all the time, well, there's a process upset that's happening. Something, there's a reason. There's a reason. Why don't we address the root cause instead of and just ignoring it? We want to, do we really want to build systems where we just ignore problems? I don't think as an industry we want to do that. No, no. And But that frankly, on the facility side, it, it happens all the time, all the time, all the time. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer that if we don't regulate ourselves, the government will come in and do it for us. And inevitably it's going to be, we're the government and we're here to help. Right. Yep. That's. And Bessie, we, you know, we've got the offshore model and unfortunately I think it took Macondo to really wake up 
the public at large as to those operations. And in West Texas, right, the, the economy relies on it. But in Louisiana, you can see the climate changing of oil and gas. People aren't. It's huge. People aren't going into Louisiana onshore. No, I've left Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. Now, granted, even though you've left Louisiana, you still leave potential liability down the road for legacy lawsuits and all that. But the climate is changing. The public is more aware. That's correct. Fracking has right. We see, especially up in the Northeast. I think it's coming, and if we don't police ourselves. It will be enforced by bureaucrats who don't understand the process. And then you're going to have stupid rules that don't necessarily fix the safety issues, but are a regulatory nightmare. And then you're doing processes that don't fix the problem. That's correct. That add cost, right? So, yeah, I mean, preaching to the choir here. Yeah, you know, my my mother, I always remember growing up, my mom would always tell me, if you don't control yourself, you're going to be controlled by others. Yeah. And I think that that's an industry that we really need to recognize and embrace that. Yeah, absolutely. Can you give people your contact info if they want to find more out about you guys, your website, your LinkedIn? Go ahead and do that whole spiel. Yeah. So the best way to get in touch with me is by email. Okay. You can email me at jeffrunyon at halker.com. And then our company's website is halker.com, H-A-L-K-E-R.com. Our website is currently under construction, so we'll be releasing a new updated website sometime in June, July timeframe. Okay. But people can find you on LinkedIn. They can they do can a find, search. They can find us on LinkedIn. They and can I'll, do a search for Hulker Consulting. We have a website. It's yeah. just it doesn't contain the full breadth of the services that we offer. So we do facilities, pipeline engineering, midstream gas plants, those types of things. We also have do some drilling with a focus on conventional we try, we really feel like there's a need for that right now. I feel like a lot of these conventional producers are getting left behind a little bit and they're just being ignored by the industry. And so we want to be unconventionally conventional, yeah. uh, as I said earlier, in, in that regard. And then we also help out with operations management. We'll do operations audits and things like that as well. And we have a, a really great, talented automations group. Oh, cool. Yeah. So what we'll do is we'll put all that information in the show notes for this episode and last episode, and that, that way people can find you and get in touch with you. Okay. So we have talked for 30 minutes. What's your time like? I want to record another episode. Will you stick around? Yeah. Can we keep talking? Yeah, I have. My flight is not out until five. Oh, okay. 18 more episodes to go, guys. No. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jeff. So today's podcast is sponsored by ThoughtTrace, developers of Alley, an artificial intelligence platform that reads and understands energy agreements and contracts to quickly find critical data. ThoughtTrace, let the software do the reading. So thank you guys for listening. Make sure you sign up for our weekly drawing for an awesome power bank at info.thoughttrace.com slash podcast drawing. You do not want to be the schmuck looking for the power outlet at the airport or on the plane or camping, or as my husband uses his, he steals mine all the time and takes it into the turkey or deer stand or whatever they're doing out there. Yeah, really cool. So go log on. Also, please make sure you subscribe. Leave us a good review. Before you leave me a bad review, why don't you email me? You can find us and uh, tell me how I can improve. But thank you guys for listening, and thanks, Jeff, for joining me. And we're going to start another episode in just a minute. If you guys could do me a favor and like, leave a review for this podcast, that's the best way for us to get exposure and let other people discover how much fun we can have reviewing insurance and risk management issues. Mm-hmm.